Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, I want to dig a little bit uh, into the distressed debt market. George Schultz is chief executive officer of Schultz Asset Management, which oversees about $200 million and is based in Purchase, New York. And George, you know, when I talk to distressed debt investors, a lot of them are tearing their hair out because the size of the distressed debt market has shrunk to about the smallest since right before the financial crisis. And it seems like there just isn't enough distress to go around. Are you tra- Are you tearing your hair out? Uh, what's left of it? There's a, I've already torn most of it out. But <laughs> All right, then. No, I mean, are, there, are there any opportunities there's, right now? There are. There are. There are a lot of opportunities, especially in the energy market. A lot of companies in the oil and gas space and in the coal industry have defaulted in the past 18 months. And many of them have emerged now. So there are a lot of uh, post-reorg equities trading, as we call them, companies that have restructured, gone through uh, a reorganization event, and now trade as post-reorg equities. But many of them aren't that well-known. Interestingly, many of them are very cheap. Uh, but they're not in the form of debt anymore. They're, they're mostly uh, uh, trading as equities now. Can you give us some so, names? Uh, uh, sure. One is uh, Energy 21, a company that's uh, interesting uh, and, and much cheaper. There's another one, Samson Resources, that that uh, was uh, formerly one of the largest uh, natural gas uh, leveraged buyouts ever. Uh, restructured and came out of bankruptcy last year. There are a lot of smaller ones. A lot of them aren't that well known. And then there are some companies in other industries that trade as uh, uh, post-distress equities as well, like Fiat, for example, uh, came out of uh, restructuring several years ago. And there's some interesting news with that today with a potential uh, Chinese investor looking to buy the company. Another one, Hawaiian Telecom, uh, which is uh, a telecommunications company that restructured several years ago and was recently sold to Cincinnati Bell at a nice premium. And a third one, uh, also in a different industry, uh, Tropicana, uh, which is a, a casino company uh, that's been that was restructured several years ago, um, had been trading as post-distress equity, and most recently benefited from a huge stock buyback. So there's plenty going on. It's just not in the form of, of distressed debt. Um, it's more uh, post-distress equities these days. Although I would imagine that you have a lot of competition because it seems like uh, investors are fighting for any scrap of an opportunity they can find just because of the incredibly high valuations in public liquid markets right now. Have you found that there is a lot of competition here, or are these opportunities too small and too speculative to really attract the big money? I, I think they're too small for the big money. Uh, a lot of the competition recently has been uh, people pumping money into uh, uh, big-name ETFs and index funds. Um, and, and there's also been a lot of uh, chasing of returns in the fixed-income market. Now, we're clearly in a market where uh, there's monetary tightening that's starting. Um, interest rates are still at very low levels, but we expect them to rise. And now, coming into the fall, it looks like the Fed will be uh, starting to reverse its, its quantitative easing program. And, and with that, we expect fixed-income securities to, to trade off. 
so we think the best opportunity right now is in equities, but but not in blindly throwing money at ETFs and the largest companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft. Rather, it, I think it's going to pay more uh, to work as an active manager and look for specific opportunities. And yes, sometimes they're smaller companies, uh, but the but the valuation there makes it worthwhile uh, to, to to focus there. How have you changed your mix? of investments to more heavily weight equities versus debt? I mean, are you completely out of your debt investments in preparation for some kind of market disruption in the wake of the end of QE or the beginning of the unwind? I don't want to make it sound so dramatic since they want to put us to sleep with this unwind. Yeah, we we have a decent amount of cash on the sidelines ourselves right now, Um, typically over a cycle. We will our, our portfolios will evolve from being more heavily weighted to distressed debt when the default rate is high and when opportunities are plentiful to when the default rate drops and is expected to climb again to focus more on the equity side. So right now we're much more focused on the equity side. I expect that going forward as defaults start to rise again with, with higher interest rates, that's where we'll be shorting more equities and eventually uh, growing our fixed income book again. But right now, we're much more focused on equities. And, and, and they tend to be event-driven uh, because usually when equities trade at very cheap levels, good things happen to those companies over time. And that's what we've seen recently with a, with a few names I mentioned earlier. Energy 21 and Samson uh, Resources caught my attention in particular because I remember back in 2014 and 2015, these were just decimated. I mean, it was sort of uh, watching a uh, sort of train wreck in front of your eyes when you looked at the uh, debt prices of these particular companies during that time. And sure, they did go into bankruptcy. How much is your wager on their uh, out-of-bankruptcy equity? How much does it depend on oil prices staying where they are or going higher? Well, these are commodity companies, and they definitely uh, are dependent on a good stable price of uh, either natural gas or oil, uh, depending on the company. But interestingly, for those two companies, they benefit from having left behind massive amount of debt uh, when they restructured. For Samson, I think it left behind about $6 billion of, of, of debt uh, in its restructuring. And now there, there's, there's post-reorg equity, but it is private. It doesn't trade uh, in uh, too liquid of a fashion. Energy 21 is also a little bit less liquid. That company, I believe, left behind about $3 billion in debt and other liabilities. So the good news with commodity companies when they restructure is, yes, you're still dependent on a healthy commodity market, but fortunately the balance sheet can be much cleaner, and you basically get a, a, fresh, uh, a fresh start, a new lease on life as we think about it. Um, and, and if you have a little luck over the longer term with commodities, uh, you should do well. Yeah. Another interesting sector is the coal space. In the coal industry, there have been just practically every major coal company in the U.S. filed for bankruptcy in the past 24 months and then came out. So companies like Arch Coal and Peabody Energy are trading at extremely cheap prices. And the uh, the interesting thing in the coal market is that there are several types of coal, not just steam coal, which gets uh, burned to generate electricity, but also metallurgical coal, which is used in, in making steel. Um, and that market has recovered quite nicely. So, so a number of the coal companies are trading at, at very cheap uh, valuations through their equities as well. And that's another area of a focus for us lately. George, just in 30 seconds, uh, when you were talking about your preference for equities to bonds, it sounds like you think, think that equities can keep rallying even if uh, benchmark rates sell off. 30 seconds, why? 
Yeah, again, it's it's not at, at, at a high level. It's not you know the biggest of the big names. It's not the S and P in general. It's more individual companies that are trading at extremely cheap prices. Again, you know, good things tend to happen to cheap companies over time. When they're so cheap because they're they're distressed and nobody wants to have anything to do with them, that's usually when you find some bargains. George Schultz, thank you so much for joining us. Truly uh, fascinating to dig into some of these specific names that hold probably more promise than broad indices of these incredibly high valuations. George Schultz is chief executive officer of Schultz Asset Management, which oversees about $200 million and is based in Purchase, New York. Life. It is the story that just keeps on giving. Matt Townsend is here in the Bloomberg 1130 studios. Matt Townsend is a global business reporter for Bloomberg News. And I know that when uh, all of a sudden you saw the shares surging this morning, you just got this excitement in you. In pre-market, you know, you're yes, shaking your head. It's back. It's back. You get to Herbalife, talk about it again. Ackman. What's going on? Okay. So, so this has to do with Carl Icahn. Of course, Herbalife was uh, brought into our consciousness uh, when there was this spat between uh, Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn over it. Uh, Ackman in a very, in a high profile manner, departed from the company. Now we have Carl Icahn remaining. Why are the shares surging so much this morning? So the company came out and said that they are going to uh, do a tender offer to buy back uh, roughly $600 million worth of shares um, at 68 bucks. So the stock basically has been trading up towards $68. And they also said that they were in buyout talks or preliminary buyout talks with uh, someone, which they didn't name, um, which we're trying to figure out, um, that to take the company public. And they had been in talks roughly since November. And these talks ended uh, roughly last week. And so the company- Talk, Take the company private. You yes. Mean. Okay. Take the company private. And which is something that I, I, Icon was rumored to be looking at as well. Um, so that news kind of creates this idea that, oh, maybe this will happen eventually. A company will, like a private equity firm, will take it private. Another reason for the shares to go up. Okay. And then there also was this uh, agreement that Carl Icahn oh, yeah. Sorry. kind of agreed to, to back off, right? So uh, Icahn agreed not to buy any shares for two years and sort of uh, let this, pro- this process play out of their sort of strategy and, and how they're going forward. Um, again, Icahn, biggest shareholder of Herbalife, has five representatives on the 13-member board, so he's heavily invested in this company doing well. Um, and, you know, this is a, a fight that goes back. Uh, Ackman first shorted the stock or publicly announced his, his short in uh, the end of t- uh, 2012. So we're four plus years now into this. Shortly after Ackman disclosed his short, Icon came out as a bull on the stock, bought a big stake. And they've had this public, they've had a couple public sparring matches going back and forth over the years. Obviously, Wall Street's loved all this drama. And so here we are. So so Herbalife is a company that is under this FTC order. This is kind of this convoluted story. So in 2016, the FTC came out after an investigation and said, Herbalife, we don't like some parts of your business in the U.S. You need to change. They're in the process of doing that. Ackman is still under their belief that this will eventually hurt the company and, and, and the stock will decline. Well, right now I'm looking at Herbalife shares that are up more than 40% so far this year. So uh, Ackman got out 
probably rightly so, at least uh, based on this year's performance uh, when it came to betting against this company. Matt Townsend, thank you so much for joining us. Matt Townsend, sure. global business reporter for Bloomberg News. And speaking of Carl Icahn, uh, he resigned from his special regulatory advisory role to President Trump. He tendered his letter of resignation on Friday. Sort of odd letter. I want to bring in Mario Parker. He's agriculture reporter for Bloomberg News in our Chicago bureau. And uh, Mario, can you just tell us a little bit about why Carl Icahn, a billionaire investor, resigned from this position and what this position was? Sure, absolutely, Lisa. So, uh, uh, Carl Icahn was named uh, special advisor on regulations to President Trump um, uh, a little over a, a month uh, or so after uh, Trump's uh, victory in November. He was an early uh, endorser of um, uh, President Trump's campaign, um, someone that uh, President Trump name-checked quite a bit on the stump, um, particularly about his uh, business acumen, etc. And so what was happening during the same time uh, was that uh, the Icon is a major um, owner of an independent oil refiner, uh, CVR Energy. And CVR Energy, among with um, a select few of other refiners, had been pushing for changes to uh, the U.S. ethanol mandate, um, saying that the costs uh, to comply with the program were too onerous. And so ICON had become kind of the public face of this campaign as well, uh, really kind of pushing uh, the Environmental Protection Agency to, um, to make these changes. Um, after uh, President Trump uh, assumed office and after, again, um, Mr. Icahn's um, designation or appointment as a special regulatory advisor, there was increased scrutiny about whether or not he would be using that position to kind of influence um, that change that he had been advocating for uh, for the better part of the, uh, the last year. And uh, was there any evidence that this increased scrutiny and potential legal jeopardy, as a New Yorker article kind of put it right after uh, Carl Icahn resigned from the board, that this was the reason for his res resignation? Well, uh, the letter that uh, Mr. Icahn sent, um, sent to President Trump um, on Friday, you know, referring to this departure, he specifically mentioned that he only spoke about broad matters of policy affecting the refining industry um, and that, um, you know, he shared, you know, his limited knowledge about certain insights with uh, uh, on certain subjects. But what we know and what our reporting has shown, uh, uh, both myself and uh, our colleague, uh, Jen DeLuy in Washington, was that um, earlier this year, Mr. Icahn was trying to broker a deal between uh, the administration and the biofuels lobby. What happened once that uh, that news broke, um, it, it had an uh, impact on different markets ranging from corn to crude oil to gasoline. Um, I'm out of concern or speculation that Mr. Icahn would prevail in this rule he was trying to get changed. Essentially, the rule he was trying to get changed would move the onerous from refiners like the one that he owns closer to the customer um, that, that delivers the, the gas the, the, the gas and the ethanol to, to gasoline stations. Right. Yeah, and, and you guys did uh, some great reporting on how much money uh, he made off of just market speculation that the rule would be changed. Uh, and uh, his letter is fascinating and very odd, and I recommend everybody read it. Uh, sort of him resigning from a non-job where he did nothing. 
but it's not illegal and he's resigning. Well, for a number of years, we heard quite a bit about peer-to-peer lending. It was going to completely disrupt uh, the big financial firms in the industry. Then there was some skepticism. Now we're kind of getting to this new equilibrium where uh, big banks are trying to incorporate more peer-to-peer type technology into their day-to-day routines. Here to join us is Jared Hecht. He's CEO and co-founder of Fundera, uh, which is based in New York and is an online lender. And are specifically trying to uh, hook up businesses with people that have money, whether it's banks or whether it's uh, hedge funds or whether it's you name it. Uh, Jared, can you give me a sense of how many transactions your platform uh, has been facilitating of late? Uh, It's about three years old, right? Yeah. So we're first off, thanks for having me, Lisa. Um, So we're around three years old. To date, we've done close to half a billion dollars in volume through our platform, servicing around 8,000 different small business owners. Uh, And currently, uh, around $25 million a month is facilitated through our platform. So what's the model here? A business wants to get a loan. How do you come into the picture here? Yeah, so generally speaking, a small business owner has a problem or an opportunity, and they think that some form of credit can be a viable solution for that. Um, They'll do a search for something like small business loans or line of credit in in search of actually educating themselves on what they're eligible for, and they'll they'll stumble on Fundera. Um, We then provide business owners an immense amount of education and literature about the different types of products that are accessible to business owners and the different types of lenders that actually service them. We also provide them what we call a common application. So it's a very easy way for a business owner to enter in a bit of information, provide a little bit of documentation. We then verify some of that information and determine which lenders and products in our network they're actually eligible for. Those products span from things like business credit cards that would be provided by the American Expresses, Capital One, and Chases of the world, to online loans and lines of credit that are provided by companies like Lending Club, OnDeck, Cabbage, and Swift Capital. So this is something more than just peer-to-peer lending or even peer lending. This is more like uh, being an online business advisor, some kind of combination between a robo-advisor and uh, an online platform to hook you up with lending. That's exactly right, with the core focus on you know advisory services and education, and then the matchmaking and taking a lot of the 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 cumbersome issues and applying for a loan and uncertainty out of that process. How do you make money? Uh, we make money every time a loan is offered and accepted on our platform. A lender or an issuer will pay us what is essentially the equivalent of a referral fee. And that's largely done because we're stripping out a lot of marketing costs and operational costs from their system because we really take care of all of the search for the business owner and the packaging process as well. It sounds like kind of the business model for some of the middle market lenders, of which there are many, and I imagine that the competition is pretty fierce. Is that right? Yeah, I think the business model is um, similar to some of the companies on the consumer end, like Credit Karma or potentially NerdWallet. Um, where we're really focused on orienting a a potential borrower around what's actually out there for them. Um, But the competition, to your point, is 
fierce, right? There's a lot of people that are trying to get in front of small business owners. We just take, I think, a very deliberate and focused approach that's not about selling a business owner, but more of oriented around educating a business owner. So what types of businesses have used your platform? Oh, it runs the gamut. I'd say the most popular industries are somewhat conventional Main Street businesses, whether those are retail shops or restaurants. We do a lot of work with independent consultants and contractors as well. They might be veterinarians or doctor's offices. I think the thing that we've learned is that no two small business owners are alike. So we really try and provide a comprehensive solution to all the business owners that are out there. Interesting. And you said that uh, you did raise uh, $20 million in equity financing. That's right. Um, and I'm wondering whether you put any of your own money up, or is it purely in operations that you have to uh, continue as far as having the educational resources and uh, arranging all of the connecting lenders to the platform? So did I put any of my own personal money well, up that, into the venture? <laughs> no, no, I mean, like on an ongoing basis. Is there the company's money uh, capital up yeah, uh, so in the platform? We don't lend a single dollar. We okay. think that that's really important because it enables us to maintain a high degree of objectivity. Um, the second we start lending capital, all of our lender partners would generally believe that we're trying to actually be the primary lender of record. And I also think it biases us in a way that's unfavorable to the business owner uh, because then our intentions may not be quite clear. We're really there to help find them the best product and lender for their needs. You know, one thing that a lot of big banks have complained about is that the demand for loans, specifically among mid-sized and smaller businesses, mm -hmm. just isn't there. That people aren't investing in uh, in their infrastructure or their businesses. Do you find the same thing? Well, I'm, we're not really talking about mid-market loans here at Fundera. You know, generally speaking, our the average size loan that a customer wants through our platform is around sixty thousand dollars. We don't see any slowdown in demand or appetite for business owners who are looking for working capital to invest in their growth. And what about due diligence? What kind of due diligence is there on the uh, system, on the platform? Um, so I think it's twofold. We do due diligence on every single small business owner that comes to Fundera and starts to submit an application. We work with third-party credit bureaus and a bunch of third-party data providers to make sure that the business is real. Um, and that's really done so that we're making sure that the business owner has to do as little work of, as possible, and it's a high-quality service for our lender partners so they know that the information that they're getting is real and vetted. And then we also do due diligence in regards to the types of lenders that we work with. Since we're providing a service to a, a business owner, we want to make sure that the lenders that are on our platform are high-integrity you know, technology-enabled lenders that are going to provide a great service with competitive and compelling rates out there. Where do you think the peer-to-peer -peer industry is heading right now? Um, that's a great question. I think that in the peer-to-peer -peer industry or just online lending, non-bank lending, I think what we're seeing is the bigger lenders are becoming more stable and increasingly big over time. And I think that we're seeing a hyper-competitive market for the smaller players where it makes them very difficult for them to actually get traction and prove that they're sustainable, viable businesses. So like most markets as they mature, the bigger players are getting bigger and becoming increasingly viable and stronger in the market. Jared Hecht, thank you so much for joining me. Thank uh, you for really, having me. It's a fascinating time for online lending and, uh, frankly, online advising. I mean, kind of merging the two is really interesting. Jared Hecht is chief executive officer and co-founder of Fundera, which is based in New York and has been uh, around since 2014.
Well, starting at the beginning of next year, a new regime of regulations will go into effect in Europe that potentially could uh, vastly change the way that European investment managers consume research. But uh, the changes may be more profound than that. Here to talk about that is Sarah Jones, UK finance reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from our London bureau. Sarah, uh, can you give us just a sense, uh, a very quick, brief overview of what these MIFID regulations are and uh, what some of the big concerns are about its implementation at this point? Hi there, sure. Uh, I mean, I guess the outset regulators, what regulators are trying to do is make the system more transparent and make individual um, industry players, whether it be asset managers or the sell side, more accountable um, to how money is being invested and how you know, client, what clients are actually paying for. So it, it's starting off to be, make it more transparent, make it safer. But of course, the consequence of that as, as you start to enforce some of this regulation and it starts to become more prescriptive is you start to get these other unintended effects. Um, so, you know, an obvious one is job losses within the research part. Um, but it's not just research that's, uh, I mean, research is more controversial part of the, uh, of the new rules, but it's, 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 it's going to affect everything from trading volumes to, um, to you know how how many funds are sold by a distributor on the continent it's very far reaching and and those consequences aren't yet known yet Talking about the implementation of this rule, my understanding is that a lot of investment firms are quite behind on the implementation. Mm. Is there any chance that mm, I don't know people might get a bit of a uh, extra cushion of time to implement this or do you expect a rush? of changes to happen in the next few months? Well, I think all firms, whether it's sell-side or buy-side, are aiming to be compliant. But I think uh, given the vast impact it's going to have, I think regulators are going to give a sort of a buffer period. I mean, certainly in research, for example, um, I think the UK regulator at least has said, well, you don't have to determine prices for the next, you know, you've got three months before you figure out exactly how you're going to price for research, which is you know, good, because at this stage, and I'd be really, I mean, everybody's still keeping their cards quite close to their chest. So that's one example. I mean, as for others, um, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a work in progress. Uh, Sarah, you were talking about potential slowdowns in trade. Can you talk mm. about, can you sort of walk us through how that would transpire and, and what in the regulations would uh, lead to that outcome? So this particular reporting was done by our London-based regulator uh, reporter, Silla Brush. So, I mean, I didn't do the number crunching on this. But the gist of what his report was about was a very conflicting rules between, let's say, the U.S. and the U.K., and it's these rules and around how you trade that's, that could potentially um, have an impact. Now, it, how long that impact will last, I mean, I'm sure, you know, as the dust settles, it'll all go back to normal, but it could be quite disruptive. Um, and so much so that the, some of the lobby groups are coming out and begging that, you know, they could delay these regulations as it pertains to, say, derivatives trading until after the regime sort of sorry, the regulators between individual companies sort of reconcile because at the moment they're rather conflicting and um, and so, and hence the confusion. I mean, these are question marks and um, whether that, you know, it might be, it might be just, it might be settled before January, but it's only five months out. So you have to wonder right. how, how, uh, how quickly they're going to, you know, resolve this problem. You know, Sarah, I have to wonder, we've already seen thousands of cuts from research mm. departments across Indeed. the street over the past uh, number of years. Have all of the sort of job reductions been baked in? Because these mm. regulations are no secret. Yeah, quite. 
Uh, I don't think so. Um, at this stage, I think every analyst still has a job as it stands now. I haven't heard of any, you know, job cuts in analysts, as, you know, certainly this year. Um, I mean, I'm sure there has been. Maybe people are starting to sort of read, the, you know, the writings on the wall and, and do other things. McKinsey, uh, McKinsey put out a, a decent report, so it's quite interesting that since the crisis, you know, in sales and, and, and sales trading, you know, you've seen the headcounts drop by something like what is it, 40% in sales and trading, and for research, it's sort of a cash equity research we're talking about. This is not even including credit research. It's fallen by just 12% since 2011. So. You know, and that's coupled with the with the the, the data that they expect. You know, investment spending in research for investment banks to sort of drop by thirty percent. So, I mean, I mean, you know, I don't think there's any hard numbers about how many how many job losses there will be, but I think less demand for research. Surely that's got to mean less demand for analysts. Yeah. Well, one thing that I've heard when I've talked to people about this is that they're expecting the top banks to continue with their staff. In other words, sure. the Bank of America is the JP Morgans yeah. of the world. Uh, it's the sort of mid-tier banks that are probably going to suffer the biggest job losses uh, because you're going to have sort of nothing between the top-tier research shops and the sort of niche uh, specialists that could potentially charge less because they've got lower overhead. Uh, exactly. And then the middle is what's going to get really crunched. Um, and that we haven't so that- seen that yet. Exactly. So it's this sort of barbell effect between, you know, the bulge brackets and sort of the bespoke um, specialist housing, houses rather. And so what happens in the middle? I guess the conversations I was having, and again, this is all anecdotal as yet because something's actually happened. There's no hard and fast data yet. Um, If you're not ranked in the top, I mean, asset managers are going through a moment of, okay, well, how do do we value research? And we have to be more discerning. So if you're not ranked in the top three or four, and you happen to fall out of that in five, six, seven. You know, why would you keep paying for that research? It's expensive. Yeah. So, Sarah and, and that's, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, and I'm sure that we will continue to follow this. Uh, Sarah Jones, UK finance reporter with Bloomberg News, coming to us from London. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.